You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Joshua chapter 4, verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid down. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the Ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben, And the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, And they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up out of Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan. For until you passed over, as the Lord God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. I want to pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would take your word and do what your word says you will do with your word, which is go out and to do what it was intended to do in our hearts. Lord, the great thing about you is that you can see all things and you know all things. And uh, there's not one of us in this room other than you that has that ability. So, Father, we pray that your word uh, would seep into the very depths of our souls where 
Um, there are things that have been unattended to for a long time, and I pray, God, that you would tend to those things on our behalf, uh, that you would come and do a work of healing and strengthening, and that you would uh, call us to trust in you and strengthen us to trust in you. Father, help us um, to spend time this morning through this text. Help us to spend time at the foot of a bloody cross where your son died on our behalf. Help us to spend time in the shadow of an empty tomb where um, the power of the resurrection resides. Father, I pray that you would do that and more. God, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Joshua chapter 4. I don't know if you got the same sense as we were reading through it together, but uh, Joshua chapter 4 is kind of a mess. Okay? You might have caught that. Um, um, it's, it's, it's a bit of a mess. Um, it's slightly confusing, I think. Uh, when you read it, kind of at first glance, um, confusing because uh, of all the repetition in it. It's just a bunch of repetition throughout um, this chapter. And, and the way that the, the narrative or the story is told, it really isn't told in a linear fashion. Uh, if, if, if you notice that when, when we're reading it, um, it's not really point A, B, C, D. It's more like there's kind of an introduction, and then it's like you look at points one and two, and then suddenly you're back talking about something that happened before the introduction even happened. <clears throat> and then after the introduction, you would expect that you would go to then back then to point three and maybe four, but you don't. You might go back to point two, and then you might go back to point one and then to three and four. It's just a really wonky way of, of writing. Um, and so uh, I th just think at first glance, it, it, it can be confusing. For instance, a um, question that uh, many commentators and scholars are asking is, hey, did, did, did Israel pass over the Jordan at the end of chapter 3? Is that when it happened? Or did they pass over um, the Jordan in verse 1 of chapter 4? Or did they pass over in verse 10 of chapter 4? Um, and so you start asking those questions, and it's, it's fascinating to look at. And the, the answer, because of all the language, the way that the language makes it, its way out, and the answer is somewhere in between the Hebrew language, which I don't understand very much, and the English language, which I understand some of. The answer is somewhere in between there. And the funny thing is... All the real smart people that write books on this stuff land in all sorts of weird different places. So it does make it a bit confusing and, and just a bit weird um, when studying through it. So um, my encouragement to you would be uh, if you're really fascinated in trying to figure those things out, um, go buy yourself a really good set of commentaries. And, uh, and, if, and, and if you don't have one, um, I have many in my office, which you cannot have. And you cannot touch. No, you can touch them. Um, but I'd be happy to show you some of the ones that, that I've um, dove into that are, are not super technical, um, that, are, that do just give you some concepts and ideas that are helpful. So uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time there. just want to acknowledge that on the front end and acknowledge um, probably just my own shortcoming and not really being able to deal with some of that um, very well. Um, but the commentaries are there. Um, I do think at the end of the day, though, there is a big idea in, uh, in all of that. Uh, and, the, and the big idea, I think, is simply this. When you, when you kind of take this whole narrative that we just read, chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 1, there's kind of this big idea that God has just simply called Israel to trust him and to follow him. And at the end of the day, um, God comes through. Right? It's kind of as simple as that. There's, you can kind of lose that principle. Um, in all of the kind of the linguistics of the passage, you know? Um, so, so really, the, the, you could just maybe write that down. Like, God has called Israel to follow him and to trust him 
Um, and at the end of the day, God always comes through. No matter how bad Israel does at this whole trusting and following thing, God always comes through. He's always faithful. Um, and that kind of brings me to the big idea that I think you see on the screen. I'm going to try to say this over and over again. And it's nothing new to you guys. If You've probably heard me say something similar to this already in our study. But uh, the thing that we need to remember um, all the way through is we need to remember God's faithfulness uh, in the past um, so that we can trust Him in the present for the future. I mean, you think about your present circumstances and the present place that you're at. Um, unless you have blinders on, which most of us don't live with complete blinders on, we don't just live for everything right here in the present. There's, there's always something in the future pressing on us, whether it's a health issue, a marriage issue, a money issue, whatever it may be. In our present, there's a future thing that's always kind of pressing on us. For some of us, it's worse than others. Like I have a tendency to live in the present quite a bit. Now, some of us have a tendency to live in the past in a really negative, destructive way, right? Uh, I'm really thankful Joshua is not the kind of leader that's going to do that. It's not going to live that way either. Uh, it's important to look to the past, though. Um, but the reality is you live right now here in the present. You've got things going on. You've got things that did go on. And at the end of the day, remembering God's faithfulness in the past, looking for that, searching for that, and finding that helps you to trust Him right now in this present moment for the future that is probably driving you absolutely crazy. Uh, so that, to me, is kind of the big idea of this passage. I hope that uh, it'll stick with you. Now, I do want to point out two things, a couple, or a couple of things. Um, Back to the scholars and the commentators once again. Many, many commentators and scholars will deal with this text in, uh, in what I would call two movements, um, two different chunks, two different sections. You'll see them on the screen in front of you. Um, it, it, it's a good perspective, and most scholars do deal with the text this way. Uh, movement number one looks like Israel crossing the Jordan um, in, in chapter 4. Verses 1 through 14, and as a cross in the Jordan, it's an in, insider perspective. It's basically as though you're inside the group and you're crossing the Jordan inside the group, right? Uh, and then the second perspective is an outsider perspective. It's as though you're not part of the group and you're standing on the outside and you're watching it, you're, you're witnessing it, you're viewing that happening. And that's kind of uh, a chapter 4, verse 15 through chapter 5, verse 1. Now again, that is kind of the common way to chop up this text. And it's helpful, okay? I don't want to totally wad that up and throw it away in the trash can. Not going to deal with it that way today uh, for some reasons that I think you'll, you'll see. Um, it is important, it is helpful though, um, just because it's told from two different perspectives, right? Um, so if you think about that, um, what you see in those two different perspectives, both the insider and the outsider perspective, is this. God says and does some things in and through and for his people. That might be a good phrase to write down. God says and does some things in and through and for his people. And you see that um, experienced in two different ways. In one way, it's experienced internally right personally there's a personal experience internally of what god is doing and then secondly in this dual insider outsider perspective those dual movements uh, it's witnessed externally so another way of saying it would be to say this what god is doing and has done inside of you is obvious to the watching world that would be a principle to take away from that um, 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 way of chopping the text up. <coughs> Another way to say it would be to say this. God's internal work is meant to be an externally witnessed work. Okay, So God's internal work is meant to be an externally witnessed work. 
Uh, you can't say God's doing a work inside of me if there's no external witness the truth of that taking place. So that's my sermonette on that perspective. It's good perspective. It, you might actually, some of you might go, you know what? That's all I needed to hear. I'm done. Amen, brother. Let me uh, take some communion. Let's get out of here. Um, but I think there's another way of looking at the text that I think uh, is also important. I would call this uh, a, a four movements in the text. There, there are basically four movements that you can chop the text up into, um, and that's the way I, I plan to deal with it for the rest of our time together. Four movements. Movement one, God speaks. Joshua speaks. That's verses one through seven. Uh, then movement two, Israel moves. Verses 8 through 14. Movement 3, God speaks, Joshua speaks, and Israel moves. Um, that's verses 15 through 24. And then finally, movement 4 is chapter 5, verse 1, and that's where you see God's enemies respond. The question is going to remain, I think, or at least needs to remain in our minds um, as we're thinking through this. Um, here's the question like, what do we learn um, from, from those four movements? Um, what do we learn about God? That's the best place to start. You don't start reading the Bible with, what do I learn about me? Like, that's a really self-centered approach to reading the Bible, don't you think? Um, how many of us uh, have approached the Bible that way? Yeah, I just call us all self-centered. and Everybody's like, do I, sh 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 I don't know if I should admit to that or not. No, you should because we're all that way, right? Um, but the reality is that the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you get to know him, the more you get corrected by him which most of us don't like correction either. We like to be soothed, right? But as we read the Bible and as we get to know God, we get corrected. And the first correction, one of the major corrections for us is just that, that we arrive at the Scriptures, we should be asking this question, God, teach me about you. God, reveal yourself to me. So that's a question. What do we learn about God? Then secondly, what do we learn about people? Uh, people like Israel, people like you and me, people like. God's enemies. What do we learn about people after we've learned something about God, of course, right? And then finally, I think another question is, is what do we learn about how we should respond, right? What do we learn about how we should respond to what we're learning about God, what we're learning about ourselves? Because otherwise what happens here is it just becomes kind of like a bunch of head knowledge, right? Like I know that the reason that this text looks this wonky is because the narrator was trying to right? If it doesn't come into, man, there is a holy God who is perfect and just and loving and merciful. And there is a human race that I am part of that is totally, absolutely 100%, if not 150% blown it. And I'm part of that. And at the end of the day, there's a response to be made to my Savior who hung on a cross, my true Joshua, right? Um, and so we need to ask important, what I would call interpretive questions, or, or what scholars would call hermeneutical questions, um, meaning just the art and science of how you would actually interpret the text. Um, and so these are some of those good questions. What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about people? And what does it tell me about how I should respond? Um, but again, in the midst of that, um, you need to remember God's faithfulness in the past that we can trust him in the future, or trust him in the present for the future. So uh, take a look at movement number one. Let's go there. Movement number one, uh, God speaks and Joshua speaks, right? This is verses one through seven. Uh, so beginning in verse one, the author of the text tells us uh, that after the Israelites have crossed over the Jordan, uh, God speaks to Joshua and he instructs him to select a, a good man representing every tribe of the nation of Israel, which I think is fascinating because what it tells me is that all 12 tribes get an equal representation regardless of size, uh, regardless of ability, regardless of social economic status, regardless of whatever, right? Every tribe gets an equal representation um, in this move. And then he, he then, God then instructs Joshua to tell those 12 men, grab 12 stones, put them up on your shoulder. So it wasn't like these little, you know, these, these, little, these little stones. You know, they were massive 
stones, I'm assuming. <coughs> We're supposed to grab those 12 stones out of the Jordan River where the priests had stood somewhere around the area of their feet. It even says where they stood firmly, I think, right? It's kind of this picture that, man, the priests of God, the men of God, as they led the people of Israel, they stood firmly in a place. And there needs to be a reminder to the rest of us what that looks like. Uh, and those rocks would be symbolic of that in some regard. Um, that's what it teaches you about people. What it teaches you about God. It teaches you that God is the one that got them through. He, he took the waters back. So um, they're to pick up these massive stones from the Jordan River where the priests had stood with the Ark of the Covenant of Israel, Ark of the Covenant of God as Israel was passing through. Inside that Ark Covenant, you've got God's law, you've got God's presence. We've talked about that. That you follow, we're called to follow the presence of God in the Word of God. Um, you can't divorce the presence of God from the Word of God. Period. End of the day, you can't. And many movements built today on divorcing the presence of God from the Word of God. And one of the first things that they would say, and I've heard this, one of the first things that they would say is, Oh, you have a problem, brother. You worship God's word. Oh, well, I kind of, yeah, you're right, I do. Because that's the presence of God. And because I see that all over the scriptures, the word of God. Oh, David, Psalm 119, worships the word of God. So, yes, we don't go anywhere where God's word and presence are not going. <clears throat> Those 12 stones that they're carrying up out of the water to be set up as a visual reminder of what God has done in and through and for his people, okay? Uh, and Joshua, if you see Joshua in this first movement, Joshua is completely faithful. That's a great picture of, uh, of leadership. Faithful. He's faithful to pass along God's word. He's taken what God has spoken, he gives it to the rest of the people, and he even explains it. He doesn't just say, this is what God has said. He explains why and how. Mark of good leaders that they would do that. Um, and he explains that, uh, that that monument of rock is supposed to be set up so that, why? So that future generations can be reminded of God's faithfulness. This is meant to be a reminder, right? I mean, th this is no different than what we do in our culture. Um, we, we set up um, monuments. We set up special days to remember certain things that have happened. One of the big ones that a lot of us love is the 4th of July because you get to blow stuff up, yeah. right? One day. And we do, this, uh, we do this from a religious standpoint. Lots of arguments around it, but at the end of the day, we do this from a religious standpoint. Easter, Christmas, because we're remembering things that happen that are important to us. Today is my daughter Charity's birthday. She turns 13. You celebrate that day. You remember the day she was born. Um. So that's what he's saying here. I want you to set this up as a, as a reminder, as a monument, something to remind you of what God has done. And that's, that's really uh, the big idea in this kind of first movement. It's this, that when God speaks, God's people must speak. When God speaks, God's people must speak. And at the same time, we must not forget um, God's faithfulness in the past. Um, so that we can trust him in the present for the things that he's going to do in the future. Uh, movement number two uh, is uh, from verses 8 through 14. And in movement number two in the story, um, Israel moves. Everybody just say Israel moves together. Man, the horrible thing is I was hoping you guys wouldn't be together so I could take another drink of coffee, and, but you were all together, so I guess we're good. We'll move on. <coughs> So movement number two is that Israel moves. So if you if you kind of if you're tracking, if you if you if you begin in verse eight and track, I'm just gonna do my best to kind of paraphrase what's taking place there, right? Starting in verse eight, we, we see Israel moving in obedience to the word of the Lord. It's a fascinating picture when you think about that, right? Um, just moving in obedience to the word of the Lord. God speaks, they move. Um, they pick up the 12 stones, they carry them to the camp. They set them up on the west side of the Jordan River. Uh, they build this massive monument of remembrance of the Lord's work. But 
This is one of the major problems in the text, so we're not going to spend a long time there. If you have an eye for detail, you might have caught this major problem in the text in uh, verse 9. There's something strange happening, right? You might look at that real quick, just so that you can agree, um, or agree to disagree, that there is something weird happening in verse 9. Because in verse 9, it appears that Joshua either makes a second monument of stones, right, in the middle of the river that's still there to this day, okay, or another opinion would be that he just simply made the monument in the river first out of those 12 stones, that he went out there as the leader, he picked up those stones and built the monument himself, uh, and then the, those 12 leaders that he chose as they passed through, they each grabbed the stone off of it and took it with them and set up the monument up where they were camping. It's one of those two options. There might even be subpoints A and B and C, depending upon how many authors and interpreters you read. So did he set it up in the middle of the river? Did they set it up out there? At the end of the day, does it really matter? Does it really matter? Um, at the end of the day, the picture is that a monument was built. At least one, possibly two. Possibly one right in the middle of that river, still there to this day. And there's one up on the hill in the plains um, where they camped. Uh, so either way, the outcome is still the same. There is a visual reminder of God's powerful work in and through and for his people, right? So I don't think uh, there's any dividing line or separating line over whether there's two or one or three. At the end of the day, there's a visual reminder, and that's what we need to learn from this. And I would just ask the question, what visual reminders do you have in your day-to-day -day life of God's power and faithfulness in your past so that you can trust Him in the present for the things that you desire in the future? What visible things do you have? Uh, for me, if you walk into my office... A lot of people like to comment on my office. You'll see a big, gigantic sword hanging in there. There's also some rocks. I like rocks. I don't know why. Um, there's rocks. And if you look at the rocks that are strewn all over my bookshelf, many of those rocks have dates and different passages written on them. And they are visible reminders for me. Some of you might remember, well over a year ago, I think I walked into the pulpit with a brick in my hand, and I preached the last passage of Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve, right? I wrote the dates on it, and I basically was like, this rock is a witness against you. You might remember that, because that's what Joshua says at the end. That rock is still in my office, and it's a visual reminder of what God did in and through and for me the summer before I preached that message. That was my first message back after being away on vacation or sabbatical that year. Um, and it's a reminder, again, of what God has done. Stay with me. In and through and for people, for me. So, um, so regardless of, uh, of whether there's two monuments, one, three, as a matter, the outcome is still the same. There needs to be a visual reminder. What visual reminders do you have in your life? This might be a day where you'll set one up. The thing that we need not to miss, though, is that when God moves, don't miss this. In all of that, come back to this. In this, in this second movement, don't forget that when, God's, when God moves, what, 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 what does God's people need to do? What do God's people need to do when God moves? They need, to, they need to move, right? They need to obediently move. Uh, you and I need to be moving in the same direction as God. You ever try to work in a different direction from what the direction God's going? Like God's headed this direction. You're, I mean, you know what this might be like in relationships, even here on earth, you know, husband and wife or, or friends, or um, you might even see this in church families, right? You get one side of the church family's headed this direction, one side's headed that direction. Well, what is dangerous, right? I'll tell you what's even more dangerous is when you start heading opposite directions, but those opposite directions are like headed at each other, kind of like two cars going down uh, in the same lane that they shouldn't be in, right? Head-on collision, <laughs> big fat mess all over the place. Um, 
point here is the same thing happens in our relationship with the Lord. We start moving in directions that He's not moving, and a mess gets created. So don't miss that in this movement that when God's when God moves, God's people need to move as well. So that's what you see with Israel is they are obediently on the move. In fact, verse 10, if you look back at the text, verse 10 actually says they move with great haste. How about that? I don't know if can anybody else feel that. Or is it just my emotional feeler gauges? They move quickly. You know, it's like when, you, when, you, when you're taking care of a kid and you're kind of like, hey, go clean your room. And they're just like, oh, man. Drag. So we have this little dog named Max. And like every night we let him out. Uh, it's the same thing every time. We'll be bent over like this, like waiting for him. And he's just like dragging his feet. Come over to come into the house. It's like, come on, old man. Jeez, Louise, I'm going to stand here bent over this whole time waiting on you. And, and it's a great representation of what oftentimes happens in our lives when it comes to obedience. Yeah, all right, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get... They move with haste. They didn't take their time. They ran quick. They got after it. They jumped off their butts and they got with it. They moved with great haste. In verse 10, on top of that, there's so much here in this second, um, this second movement. On top of that... Um, Israel is crossing over the Jordan ready for war. Okay? So you, if you can like get a picture of this, they're crossing over ready for war. What did it say? 40,000 armed people? That's an army. I know there's been bigger armies, but 40,000 armed people? Um, they're armed for battle. They're not merely, listen, they're not merely crossing the river to get into the promised land so they can finally just sit down and go, man, that was a long journey. Somebody give me something cold to drink so I can take a break, right? They're not headed over the Jordan River to take a vacation. They're headed over the Jordan River to go to war to take possession of that which God is giving them. Uh, This is a great spiritual analogy for the way that we need to walk out our salvation. When you trust in Jesus and he gives you a new heart, it's not like you just go, oh, thank you, Jesus. I got me some fire insurance. I ain't going to hell anymore. I'm going to heaven. It's all good. Just want to get me some comfy things going on out in the church, right? That's not the picture of what Christianity is about. From the moment that you and I get saved and God gives us a new heart, it's a fight. It's a battle. The problem is that we get our eye off the real fight and the real battle, and we start fighting stupid little fights that don't matter. And we stop growing because we're, we're deflected, because we're distracted. And these guys, they crossed over armed, ready for battle. They're not headed over to take a vacation or to take a break. Um, it's good to note, I think, on this same tone that our best wartime posture you were to tie these concepts of the promised land being a restful place because hebrews does tell us it's a place of rest and it ties it to the sabbath our best wartime posture in the spiritual sense is a wartime posture that is grounded in finding um, restful security and the faithfulness of god so when god moves god's people must move And we must not forget in the midst of that. We must remember God's faithfulness in the past is meant to help us trust Him in the present for the things that we want Him to do and that He's going to do in the future. Movement number three. Move out of that box into another box. Most of y'all can tell that this this guy's definitely a dude with a waffle in his head, right? Open one box, have some fun in that one, get some butter and some syrup in it, close it back up. Move to a different box. I'm a man. This is the way it goes. So um, movement number three, like box number three, what happens here in verses 15 through 24 is uh, God speaks, Joshua speaks, and Israel moves. God speaks, Joshua speaks, and Israel moves. Beginning in verse 15, um, take a look there. 
And the Lord tells Joshua, this is fascinating, tells uh, Joshua to get the priest out of the water, right? So what does Joshua do? He goes and takes a nap. No, he doesn't go take a nap. <laughs> he turns around and he tells the priest to get out of the water. What do the priests do? Well, they go take a nap. No, they don't go take a nap. They get their butts up out of the water. I mean, I don't know that they want to stay there anyways. But as spiritual leaders, which, by the way, I keep using that term, and some of you might try to make this distinction between, like, well, Pastor Joe, or maybe the other Pastor Joe, or, or any of the other leaders that we see in the church. They're leaders. I'm not leaders. Can I just, like, put that to rest? If you have received Jesus and you're following him, you are a leader, period. And whether you scrub toilets, mow the lawn, study scriptures to disciple people and do premarital counseling, whatever, you're up here um, leading worship. At the end, you are a leader. If you're a member in God's church, you're a leader, and you have a responsibility um, to pursue faithful leadership. And it's hard to wrap our minds around that, but I just want you to know, when I say leaders, that's what I mean. I think that's what the Bible means when we talk about leaders. So Joshua, good leader, right? Tells priests get out of the water. The priests are like, okay, we'll get out of the water. So they get out of the water. Uh, remember, the water was stopped up by the hand of the Lord. And as soon as they step out of that water, what happens? That water woof, comes right back down, fills up the bank <coughs> of, the, of, the, of, the, of the river again. Uh, my thought there as I'm looking at that is this, this had to have been a powerful visual, right? I mean, you're standing in the middle of the river, and we, we, we talked about this last week, that big bank of water just kind of held up, like seeing that, like, man, that, that'd be like my sin. God's holding that back, and if he let that go right now, it would overwhelm me, and I, I'm pretty much powerless. The only way I'm going to make it through here is by his hand. So I just think there's still a powerful visual there <coughs> uh, for Israel, but not just Israel, but <clears throat> for the inhabitants of the land, right, that Israel is getting ready to possess. Um, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're going to get there in a minute. Um, if you look at verses 19 through 24 here, um, they seem to be kind of a summarizing statement of the entire narrative. That's what they seem to be. Um, Israel and her priests, they get up out of the river. Twelve stones are carried out. They're erected into a monument of remembrance. Joshua, again, gives some instructions for what it looks like to remind future generations God's faithfulness. And that's really the bottom line, I think, once again. You're, just, you're hearing the story again to remind you once again that when God speaks and when God's people speak and when God's people move, then what happens? The whole world sees it. When God speaks and when God's people speak, and then God's people get up and get moving based on what God's word has spoken. Who sees that? Everybody around us. Um, the whole world. Again, remember God's faithfulness in the past so that you can trust him now in the present for what he's going to do in the future. Finally, <clears throat> movement number four. Movement number four is chapter five, verse one. And what we see there is uh, 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 God's enemies just simply respond to what they've seen, right? They just simply respond. It's the response of God's enemies to what God has just done in and through and for his people, right? Uh, all of the kings of the Amorites and the Canaanites, which this is the land of Canaan, um, so it would be like us saying... All the kings of the land of Russia, I don't know, whatever comes to my mind, um, saw what God did through this group of people, right? As they invaded what they thought was their land. <clears throat> kings of the Amorites and, and the Canaanites heard. They heard it, text says. Um, they heard what the Lord did. Someone on their team, someone in their camps had to have visually seen this thing happen. And then they went and reported it to them. The response, according to the text, is simply this. This is fascinating. Their spirits melted. I've never seen anybody's spirit melt. I've seen a lot of things melt. No, actually, I probably have seen spirits melt. I think we've all probably experienced that, haven't we? You've had that moment in your life where your spirit melted, where your courage went away, 
where you felt like you wanted to crawl up in a corner, suck your thumb, and cry like a baby. And maybe you did, okay? I've not sucked my thumb in a while, but I have crawled up in a corner and cried like a baby um, in different seasons. Why? Because my spirit melted away. Now, I don't, I don't know that I can unpack for you in the time that we have how many times that has happened in my life because of something that I visibly saw God do versus times when that happened in my life just simply because my flesh is flipping weak, right? But I do know what it's like to have my soul and my heart just feel like it melted away. That's the place that these kings, the inhabitants of this land, were in. And they were in that place because of what they saw God do. Um, And so the bottom line is that God's enemies, when they see and when they hear how God speaks and how God moves His people, um, God's enemies melt away. Just simply melt away. And in the midst of that, cannot forget that uh, God's faithfulness in the past <clears throat> helps us to trust Him in the present for what He's going to do in the future. Now, I have a quick summary um, as we wrap this up. Not a conclusion yet, so wait. Not a conclusion yet. I was taught this last week that there is a right way and a wrong way to do conclusions. That it should be more like Andean conclusion. And by, and by the way, that another conclusion and as I'm concluding, I want to conclude the conclusion. <laughs> apparently, apparently, good preachers have multiple conclusions within the conclusion. I just want to stop on a summary for a minute um, before we go to the conclusion. Okay. What have we learned today? What, what have we learned? Shift gears. What have we learned? I want to get us out of here. We've learned that when God speaks, God's people must speak right? When God speaks, God's people must speak. We've learned that when God moves, God's people must move. We've learned that when God speaks and when God's people speak, and then when God's people get on the move, the world sees it, the world knows it. What does the world know? Not just that God's people are on the move, but they know that God is mighty. They go, man, that's your God. He's doing something crazy. Um, finally, we also learned that when God's enemies uh, see and hear how he speaks and moves among his people, then his, his enemies just simply melt away. <clears throat> the question, though, as I uh, alluded to at, at the start, is why does all this matter? What's, what difference is any of this going to make in your life, in my life? It's a winding road of a story. Um, how are the principles of this text going to help all of this, all of us in this room, living in different places of life? How is it going to help? Um, I I uh, wrote down, um, like we got college students, you got married couples, you got teenagers, you got empty nesters, we got. Single parents, got working class folks, uh, we got Americans, right? America, we, I mean, we just got, we got people in this room, all sorts of different people. And I would uh, be super naive and full of pride if I even thought I could come anywhere close to making any of this sound helpful to each and every group of people in this room. Wouldn't I be? Thankfully, I'm not God. And God is God, and He can do anything He wants to do. So I believe that God can take this message and answer that question for each one of us by the power of His Spirit. That in and amongst the diversity of our church family, He can answer that question, what difference is this going to make in my life? That's His job. My job this morning is just to simply uphold the word of the Lord and say, behold the Lord. That's my job.
Now, in conclusion, I think that the difference that this text makes um, is that it reminds us that God has a calling on our lives, right? God simply has a calling uh, on our lives. And the call of God on our lives from this text is to simply speak what he speaks and to move where he moves and to represent him to the watching world. Those are the three kind of, if I could summarize all of this down to those three things, it's that. Speak what he speaks, move where he moves, represent him to the watching world. And I think the way that we do that is by simply remembering that Christ has defeated our enemies at the cross and the empty tomb. I don't know where else I could land other than there. For some of you, it might seem redundant. And if it seems redundant, I, it's between you and the Lord. I really don't know where else I could land that would be of any significant help to us other than to say, that's where we got to land. We need to land at the bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb and recognize that the power of this Christian life always lands us there. And, and we know that the New Testament, when Jesus speaks, says, man, do this in remembrance of me, right? Do this in remembrance of me. The one monument that you and I have that is the most important thing that will help us to remember God's faithfulness in the past so that we can trust him in the present for the things of the future is the cross and the empty tomb. There is no other preaching that will satisfy and sustain. None. That's the place I would land. Christ has defeated our enemies at the cross and the empty tomb. There's absolutely nothing standing in our way. God has created an absolutely clear path through our sin and our worship dysfunctions. Create an absolutely clear path. Nothing standing in our way. We don't have to stand on the bank of the river anymore and wait. The promised land is right there. And Jesus is our true Joshua, our true Savior, who leads us, who goes before us. No barriers. All of the barriers have been removed. Satan, sin, and the grave, they hold no power over us. In the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus has made a way forward. We literally can, as God's people, in the community that we live in, we can speak the words of God when we're called to, and we can move in obedience when God moves because He has removed every barrier that could ever stand in our way. I don't know what things you came in here struggling with. I don't know the sin you're dealing with, the temptation you're facing, or the, the suffering that you're enduring, or the rebellion that you're up against or the fear, or the doubt, or the shame, or the guilt, or the loneliness, or the brokenness, or the despair, or the unbelief, or the weariness. I don't know what's happening inside of you, but I do know this, and this I am proud and happy to proclaim. God is calling you to speak when he speaks, and move when he moves. To do this is by remembering the power of the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. This is what we must never forget. This is what we must set up an eternal monument to in our lives. That God's faithfulness in the past helps us to trust Him in the present for the future. Amen. as we close, uh, we do uh, what we do every week. We look back and we remember the cross of Christ, the shed blood and the broken body of Christ as we celebrate communion together. I can't think of a better place to land. Now, you don't have to be a member of our church to participate in this meal, but you do have to be a member of the church. You have to be a believer. Otherwise, this is meaningless. There's no power for you quite yet wouldn't want you to do something you don't really believe. So if that's you, don't, don't partake. 
But if God has moved you somehow in these moments to trust in the work of Jesus at that cross in the past so that you can trust him now in the present for your future, you recognize that you are sinful and broken and helpless, hopeless without him. Um, if, that's, if that's where you're at, then, then we want you to come participate. There's four stations, three across the front, one in the back under the big clock. Two on your left and your right uh, will have people at them to pray for your needs and serve you the elements. Same as the one in the back under the clock. Um, this one in the center in the front uh, is one for you just to come to on your own if you just want to do that between you and the Lord. Go for it. The way that we do communion here is we tear a piece of bread off the loaf and we dip it in the juice. That's the symbol of Christ's broken body and shed blood on behalf of us. Um, and so... I want to invite you to that. I want to pray for us uh, as we head there. Father, thank you for this message today and thank you for your word and thank you for um, the opportunity we have here over the next few moments to um, be reminded once again of the power of your work in the cross and the empty tomb. Uh, Lord, I, help us to trust you right now in these present moments. Um, for the things that you're going to do in our lives in the future. Even just remembering now, Father, one of the most miraculous things that's going to happen in the future is you're going to come back. You're going to come back and you're going to get us out of this place that we live in that's full of suffering and sin and hardship. You're going to take us to a place called heaven, our true promised land, where there is no more mourning, no more sickness, no more tears, no more sin, no more brokenness. Everything will be made right. So we look forward to that day now. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.